Sorry, I'm having trouble hearing you. Okay, okay. Hey, how's everyone doing? Um, yeah, the title is self-explanatory. Q is not joining us because he did not see Nope. He was supposed to see it uh, the first time. This was originally scheduled for Tuesday. On that day, I was not able to see it in time. And then I, we postponed it to Friday, and I saw it in time for Friday uh, tonight. But Q was not able to see it, so... I figured I didn't want to delay it one more time, so let me just uh, take it solo and just do it, just do it like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I am curious. I don't feel like doing a long type of upfront review. You know, I feel like a lot of times um, we spend a little too much time talking and not getting to the calls fast enough so the fact that i'm here by myself i think gives a chance to um let you guys get right into it and do something a little different so uh people are free to come in as soon as they want and just jump right into the queue and um there's an interview that my friend michael sent me um where gail king is interviewing Jordan Peele, but it's like nine minutes. I'm wondering if I should play the whole thing. Uh, hey, we have Chris. I'll just jump right to Chris. So um, let's go. Uh, hey, Chris, is that Lindsay, is that Lindsay Buckingham? Oh, oh, I hit the bottom right to unmute. 
Unfortunately, oh, it's audio. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you now. Cool. Yeah, yeah, this is Lindsay Fuckingham from the Discord. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, okay, cool, cool. How you feeling? Good, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll, I'll just talk about your icon. I didn't realize that you were actually Lindsay Buckingham from the Discord as well. I just made yeah. the picture. Oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's why I have the picture. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. Um, yeah, I saw it opening night, and I, I really hated this movie. Okay, okay. So, wow, we are cooking with grease. Man, you jumped <laughs> right into it. You, you know, like... I'll be honest, I did not like it either, but I thought I was going to be like the odd man out. And I thought it would take a couple of people if I found someone uh, who hated it. But, okay, so nah, I'm, curious man, hear, I... I'm curious to hear why, why, why you hated it. And the fact that you went on opening night makes me feel like you are not a Jordan Peele hater. You're not someone predisposed. Like, you seem like someone who would have went in wanting to like this movie if you went on opening night. Yeah, you know, I like I was I was a fan of his. Like, I liked the, the Key and Peele show. You know, I like to get out. You know, like I want, like I wanted to like him, but it seems every movie seems to get subsequent, subsequently like worse. Like every movie, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think this movie, like, I, I, I feel like this movie is part of. I don't know. It, it just seems like something that's that's going around now, where you know, where instead of showing you a picture, everyone's like, "Oh, you here? You want to see a picture?" And they just like dump out like a jigsaw puzzle pieces. Oh, oh yeah i mean on the discord we've talked about um what we call puzzle puzzle movies and this is yeah. a perfect example of a of a puzzle movie uh i mean also like the whole mystery the whole mystery box thing there's a lot of that happening this kind of thing where movies are just, and tv shows are this thing where you have to uh take a long time to even figure out just what the hell am i even watching yeah it's like it's like somehow we've we've uh you know we lost like basic storytelling you know like just the ideas of planting and payoff you know just showing what's important in the movie like giving you information letting you know what's important by giving it like a close-up or something so you can know what's gonna happen like there were times in this movie when things happened and i was like and I, and, I, and i was like confused you know and and like sometimes like when something weird happens in a movie they'll like they'll explain it like right afterwards you know yeah but like but like in this one it was like you know 20 minutes later like they kind of give you an explanation like you know so, so, so this explanation was still kind of lacking like for example by the way up front this is gonna be full of spoilers in case in case you're one of those readers <laughs> who likes to go into discussions about movies and it gets mad when people spoil it like i never understand that attitude but yeah this is uh one of those uh sporter type thing so yeah um i mean in case you were not inclined to already uh Lindsay, feel free to spoil away yeah okay so like you know just from the beginning like i think the first real thing was like you know like when the sister like stole the horse statue like i, I was like i was like I, I didn't know where that what that was about i didn't I, like you know maybe i missed it but they were saying like it came from the ranch and they didn't really like plant out with the ranch, you know, and, uh, what's his name? Steven Yoon, like his ranch and his old thing. Yeah. And that those were his kids. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm okay with not spelling everything out, but in a movie where there's so much unnecessary mystery already, you don't have to keep adding, making every little element of it, something to be puzzled together. Like just, just say, Hey, those are his kids. Oh, I stole this decoy. Like everything is, um, kind of like you know, to be puzzled puzzled out and 
So it's like puzzles on puzzles, which uh, got on my nerves. Yeah. Yeah, like they have the three kids show up in the alien costumes. And I'm like, you know, and I was, I was like, well, who are the, who are these children? Like, he just punched a child, one. And I'm like, who are these children? <laughs> I was like, who are these children in this ranch? And, and, you know? It wasn't until they came out again later on uh, at the, you know, when they came out as his kids. Uh, yes. You know, in that later scene, I said, oh, those are the same three kids. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I was like, how did three random kids get into this ranch that's in the middle of nowhere? Like, like the whole time I'm like thinking, like, what, what is going on? Like, who are these kids? And they have alien costumes. Why would they show up in alien costumes? Like, it was so weird. Oh yeah, yeah. That's another great. Uh, well, well, it's kind of explained. Well, actually, no, it's not explained. It's well, it's explained shown... later. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But not, but barely explained. You have to still yeah. kind of piece it. Uh, together it's um you know you know this movie is too subtle for its own good and too heavy-handed for its own good at the same time like it's subtle where where it could stand to just be direct like like what who are those kids why are you just in alien costumes they make, they make everything into like a surprise mystery but then there's other things like here's the black jockey and okay i, I get it like you know um, or, or the or the or the chimp, and it's like okay, I get it. Like uh, people are treated like objects or objectified, and you know this um, alien feels like he's objectified. But it's also kind of a weird thing because it's like he's so heavy-handed with all the metaphors and imagery that a lot of times the things don't seem to blend with each other. And to give it to give an example. Okay, so you have the monkey, and the monkey is kind of like some. The chimp is something that is um, objectified and treated like you know a uh, performing object, or it has its um, personhood taken away, and it um, you know rebels. And I feel like they're trying to kind of imply the same thing about this uh, monster that Stephen Yoon's um, exploiting it or whatever, but. At the same time, the monster is a total predator that um, has a camera for a mouth. So I'm like, wait, so does the monster represent being oppressed and being exploited? Or does the monster represent the media, which does the exploiting? Like, what are you trying to say, Peel? I don't understand this monster represents the person exploited by the media and the victim. Or does it represent... um, But part of the problem for me was... The basic storytelling and craft and basic construction wasn't compelling enough for me to really want to dig into the themes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you know, in my opinion, when you have a movie, you should be able to just watch it on the surface first and get it, and then when you go back, you dig deeper and you find the the, the deeper meanings and everything. Exactly. And it's like with these movies, it's like like you have to like like first of all, like I've found from watching a bunch of online interviews that you can always tell when something is some bullshit when 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 a reviewer says you have to I'm gonna have to watch it three or four more times to get it. Or yeah. or two, you have to just let it wash over you. Like I've heard to process it or unpack yes. it. Yeah. It usually means bullshit. Yeah. You know? Um one thing totally agree. Uh, one thing that I that about the basic storytelling, right? So Stephen Yoon, like he had that show, the Jupiter's Claim show, where he was gonna bring out the alien and then he was gonna like feed it the horse. 
you know, and like when that happened, I didn't know what was going on. I just saw like the uh, this flying saucer on the back of the jacket, you know, and then I was like, oh, so he's he something to do with the alien. And then he has this whole show built like and, and I had left me with so many questions because it was like, well, how many times did he do this show? Did he yes. just build the show? When did he build the show? Did he build the theater for horse stuff and then like repurpose it for the show? When did he how did he, dis- how did he discover? How did he discover the alien? How did yeah. he make this uh, pack? And also, it just seems like a crazy idea. Like, what kind of person <laughs> is going to see this insane alien and instead of calling the authorities or even trying to get rich in a more substantive way, like calling the press, you're going to be like, "Hey, I'm just going. My big plan for this incredible alien." It's to make a show that forty people go to, and, yeah. Well, and, and, and collect like, like ten dollars or twenty dollars a pop. Like that just seems <laughs> weird for someone that entrepreneurial. That's his big yeah. thing. Like, hey, I just it, it, like, Jesus came back to Earth, you know, and it's like, well, yeah. I got Jesus here. I know I'm gonna do. It. I'm gonna live stream him on Twitch. Like, like it seems <laughs> that small and weird. It was bizarre as hell. Yeah. Well, well, you forget that he did that because he fist bumped the monkey. And then he was able to form the bond with the predator. And then that made him think that because the monkey didn't kill me and the monkey liked me, then the space alien and me can make a deal. But even if you make a deal with the alien, make a deal with the alien to go big time. <laughs> why, why are you doing a rinky-dink show with the alien? The alien? It's just bizarre as hell. Like, you know, like, like, yeah. he's, he's doing a Barnum and Bailey show with like the most significant discovery in the history of humanity. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. and, and and one last thing I just want to say, when the movie started, I saw Keith David and I was like, all right, here we go. And then they killed him immediately. And I was like, what? Oh, my God. My friend said the same thing. He's like, what is the hell of um, using Keith David for this? Uh, my co-host of the show, uh, to Champion Sharks, Mario, um, liked this and... But he he tied in all this imagery from the Bible and all these um, allusions, and I think he was right in all the allusions he said. But I'm just I just I just don't care. Like, yeah, if, if you if you can't get the simple plot holes down, I don't want to hear all your deeper themes. Um, my friend Michael said that um, themes are not a substitute for plot. I'm probably butchering what it, what he said, but I totally agree. Like. And you, and you were you nailed it when you said that he makes these movies so that you can have your Easter egg hunting brain on yeah. and in the foreground during the first watch or rather during the second. Like you can't and and Get Out. I actually like Get Out, but I thought Get Out worked very well as a surface movie the first time you watch it, and then on the rewatch, um, you know, a lot of the themes jumped out at me. But now his audience is so trained to. Um, do Easter egg hunts. And something I kind of noticed, right, and I was telling somebody about this, when I read a lot of uh, reviews of his work, when I saw it, I didn't like it. And I'm like, I want to see what other people think about it. And when I was watching it, it was a bunch of, it felt like, the answer key to a Where's Waldo book. In, in, you know, when you get Where's Waldo and you look at it and and when you give up, you go to the answer key and the answer key uh, in the back of the book has all the Waldos highlighted and circled so you can see where you missed them. And I feel like these so-called reviews, instead of being like, hey, 
this was uh, this is how the plot was. This is what I think about the acting. It was like just making a laundry list of all the Waldos, but it's like a worse Waldo where all the Waldos are like um, five inches big. They're all like huge Waldos, anyways. Like it's not even like um, a good worst Waldo pu- puzzle. It's like it's just heavy-handed as hell. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I just have one last question. I, I'd oh, yeah, like to ahead. ask. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that? You know the whole ecosystem on the online of the think pieces and the and videos that do like you know ten twenty Easter eggs you didn't know about this movie and the review cycle and all that stuff and the ending explained. Do you think that influences filmmakers to make a, these type of puzzle movies so that it gets more so that like it feeds into that and then like if you have more of that content out there it might push people more to see the movie there's more content around it i've actually had this discussion with somebody and we were having this debate actually right where um we were saying do people make puzzle films because of the um viewer or has a viewer been conditioned to enjoy puzzle films because of the um filmmaker and i would say probably the one the first puzzle film people was um hitchcock but hitchcock had a very good grasp of basic uh plot yeah i would call like vertigo like uh an early like um puzzle film but um a lot of these guys like the like the mystery boxes and the puzzle films just get like worse and worse because they build a whole movie around it and almost don't even care if it has, if it's full of plot holes or it doesn't make sense, because they're just hoping the twist will so like rock you that you'll just um, forgive everything else and just move, just move, move on. And uh, so I, I think it's like a reinforcing loop. Like I think I think the filmmakers condition the viewers to like the puzzles, and then the viewers make them a hit, and then the studios. Keep ordering, keep ordering more and more of them. And at this point, uh, which came first, I I don't know. Um, I have no idea. It, it's a great question, but at this point, I don't think it even matters. Someone has to break, has to break the chain. I think it has to start with the um, consumer. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. all right, cool. That's Good. all I got. No problem. Good talking <laughs> to you. All right. Uh, Good talking to right. you. Before, before um, we go on, I want to um, read something that I thought was was very good about puzzle films. This is a guy called uh, Ray Carney, and he's someone he's someone that I like a lot. His um, his um, takes on things, but he's a notorious snob. That's the one thing I think say about him he can be a bit much when it comes to the snobbiness but he um makes a lot of great makes a lot of great points so before we get to gabby um actually let me just put gabby up here now and she can she can comment with me while i read from this but hey gabby how's it going oh by the way Oh, and by the way, Gabby, you know, not that you need my permission for this at all, but uh, feel free to vociferously disagree. If you were all in on this movie, I actually want to hear from someone who loved this movie. So, okay. 
Oh, 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 by the way, you sound very low. I don't know if there's anything you can do about that. No, you sound very low. Is it just me? Does you sound low to anybody else too? Yeah, if you, if you can do anything about that, that would be great. Okay, so I guess she's trying to trying to do something. Oh, she disappeared. Okay, well, Gabby, whenever you can. Oh, she's back. Let's see. All right, Gabby. Okay, this is really bad timing because I am walking in the rain. In Harlem, oh, okay, so okay, gotcha. <laughs> you could hear that. I don't know. Can you hear me now? That oh yeah, I can. I can hear you better now. It's not great, but okay. it's it's, def it's definitely better. Going, I appreciate you de your dedication to no, call in like, even in the rain. Soaking, I am soaking wet. I'm like, no, I am not letting. You know, takes can't wait. You know, the rain can't <laughs> take for the. No, okay, so. I will say, I feel like I knew this was going to be kind of like a discourse room, but if it's okay, I'm actually going to maybe talk a little, because I don't think the plot really works, at least it didn't work for me, but I will say, like, on a vibes level, I did like this movie, um, so I'm going to maybe, like, point out some of the things I did like, and then I'll, I'll like, walk through whatever you wanted to talk cool, about. Cool. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so here's the thing that I do appreciate, I think, like, where Jordan Peele is right now in his like journey as I don't know I guess like an auteur are we calling him that sure um is that he like knows who to hire because the second I saw Van Hoytema's name like as the director of photography in the opening credits I was like okay I'm gonna strap in I'm gonna have a great time and like what I will give this movie is that the shots were in my opinion some of the best I've seen this year so like and like the biblical stuff I really it worked for me because I think to me it reminded me a lot of like what mother did and I think that was another movie that was actually weirdly more polarizing and people really hated this time because they didn't like what I don't know if you've seen it but like they didn't like what Aronofsky was trying to say with like the biblical themes and like fame and you know cult figures and so I think maybe what I took away is that nope kind of turned our you know I, I don't know just like I guess interrogated our obsession with you know monetization culture and um you know that opening uh quote about Nineveh like the Babylonian city where basically like God punished them due to their, you know, obsession with material things and fame, I thought that worked a lot for me, at least personally, because I love those sort of like allegorical um, takes. But I agree, like when I do pull apart, like I left the theater and I was like, okay, I guess I do need to watch this three more times to like appreciate the way that like people were like, yeah, it's on Twitter because I didn't really have like a take. And I think after a couple of days sitting with the movie, I was like, okay, I don't, Maybe I don't love it the way I love Get Out or, or even Us, but I do appreciate the artistry a little bit more, but that's just me, but we can go back to hating it now. No, like, I'm glad to hear um, a positive, a positive but take on it. But I think the it. plot, like you said, I want to make sure, like, I'm clear, the plot, I didn't really think fit together, even though you're right, like, a lot of it was, like, he was letting us fill in the gaps, is the way my friend described it, and I'm like, yeah, but, like, that's not a stand-in for, like, good you know cinema you know what I mean so I like that's why I'm calling it a vibey movie because I liked going with what was happening but I didn't necessarily think it was like well assembled well
I told someone, um, they didn't agree with me, but the one positive thing I did say about this movie is that I thought there was a good dumb movie buried in um, this, this this pretentious one. Like, I feel like if he shaved off a half hour and just let it be um, Monster of the Week movie, and you just let it be about, hey, I think it's a spaceship, but ooh, it was actually a monster, and uh, who's it going to eat next? And we have to... Um, Stop it. Or something on the level of like uh, Jaws, which is not like a dumb movie, but it's like a middle bra movie. It's not Jaws right. is and not. He, was, like, he mentioned that he was inspired by Spielberg's like tentpole uh, thrillers, you know, like <sighs> E.T. So that I think that oh, came through in my opinion. There was so much Spielberg in this. Like um, <laughs> there was there was Close Encounters. There was um, Jaws. And it was like Jaws to the point where remember when Jaws had that um, ornery old captain that they that they brought in at the end who gets super obsessed to the point that he lets the shark eat him, uh, and that filmmaker I felt like that captain who gets eaten on the boat. Um, it was like very on the nose. Um, yeah, I was expecting you know, a Richard Dreyfuss to show up at one point, but yeah, <laughs> yeah and that and that fist bump with the monkey I felt like was meant to be reminiscent of like the touching fingers with ET. Um Steven Yoon as a callback to Short Round I felt went back to um you uh, know Short Round from um Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom which was a Steven Spielberg film that he did with George George Lucas like but at the same time I was kind of like okay what are you trying to say with the Steven Spielberg stuff like it like there's so many themes that I mixed in like okay there's this like TMZ media exploitation theme there's a black jockey but also Steven Spielberg and I felt like he had three movies worth of illusions trying to jam them into one movie and they didn't always like I think it's okay to let things breathe and you know just pick like one set of illusions and just Go with go with that for this movie. So um, there's there's more Spielberg like nods that I felt were in this movie as well, and I just wasn't sure what this like. For example, um, Aquaman that movie that came out had a bunch of Steven Spielberg uh, nods in it. It had George Lucas nods, and it had like um, James Cameron, uh, The Abyss nods. But the movie was so kind of threadbare. As far as plot and everything, it actually kind of worked because it wouldn't try and say anything deep. It was just so it could work as this giant love letter to movies. But I felt with this one, he has a lot of Steven Spielberg homage, but he's not actually trying to do a Steven Spielberg blockbuster. He's trying to do like a deep introspective film. So it's like, okay, what does Steven Spielberg, you know, have to do with these things you're trying to talk about with um, domination and subjugation and exploitation and media? That's just that's just um one of my thoughts on it. Kind of kind of kind of annoyed me a little bit. Oh, she's gone. Okay. Um, before we get to James, I'm going to just read real quick. This is um. So this guy Ray Carney, he hates a lot of popular things, but one thing's interesting about him, he hates Hitchcock. I don't actually dislike Hitchcock, but he's one of the people that makes a point about Hitchcock being the first puzzle film guy. And uh, he wrote, um, look at Mulholland Drive, which is a David Lynch movie. He goes, and for an even more express, depressing experience, look at the critical accolades showered on it. 
film comment devoted a large part of an entire issue to it. In celebration of what? A series of smart-ass tricks and games. Big freaking deal. That's the best someone can do with a couple million dollars. I don't care how the New York critics revel in it or what they call it. It's cynicism to me. You wouldn't need all the emotional backflips and narrative trap doors if you had anything to say. You wouldn't need doppelgangers and shadow figures if you had, if your characters had souls. I always think of something Robert Frost students said he used to ask over and over in class. Is this poem sincere? Robert Graves had a similar bullshit test. He used to ask, is this poem necessary? Those are not bad questions to ask about any work of art. Movies like Mulholland Drive and Kill Bill are not about sincerity or, necess or necessity, but stylishness. We don't learn anything important about life from them. Th this adoration of cleverness, this love of wit, isn't something new. Lynch's fan club didn't invent this value system. Oscar Wilde was prancing down this runway a long time ago. The critics loved it then and they love it now. Look at the votive, rights, votive lights that have been tended at the Hitchcock Shrine for more than 50 years. I was leafing through an old issue of Movie Maker where a good friend of mine, David Starrett, was being interviewed and described Hitchcock as a quote-unquote philosopher-poet. That got my attention. That's what a filmmaker should be. So I couldn't wait to read his answer to the next question the interviewer asked about what made Hitchcock's work so great. I was all set for a poetic philosophical answer. Then Starrett did something about the way in Psycho, the first thing visible in Sam and Marion's hotel room is the bathroom and the way that the driving in the rain scene involves water and blades. Get it? Marion is killed in a bathroom, in the shower, and the water streaming down her body by a blade, and ta-da! There are all these allusions to bathrooms, showers, and blades earlier in the film. Can you run that by me again? Is that the poetry part or the philosophy part? And this is the last paragraph. Sorry for this being so long, but we'll wrap this up soon. It's an immature notion of art. I can understand the appeal. Everyone went through that stage. I did too. In high school, the class read The Great Gatsby, and when we were done, the teacher pointed out these metaphors, the green light and all those other references. I thought I had understood the novel before that, but then I suddenly realized how I had missed all this metaphoric stuff. I raced through the text finding all these things I hadn't realized were there. It was like reading a different book. It was a heady experience. It was exciting. I had never known you could do that. There was all this hidden stuff just waiting to be excavated. That must be what a work of art is. It had secret meanings. Wow, amazing. I felt like an intellectual for the first time when I did it. But that was high school, for God's sake. I was just a kid. I got over it. A few years later, sometimes in, sometime in college, I guess, I realized how trivial it all was, that it was all just a parlor trick. But there are apparently thousands of film reviewers and students and professors out there who had never gotten over the green light at the end of Gatsby. Art is about finding hidden messages in invisible bottles thrown ashore by the artist. It's that pattern that emerges when you connect the dots. Bathroom, rain, wiper blades, shower scene, knife blade. Get it? It's all so clear, so crisp, so abstract, so tempting. It's the pleasure of filling out a crossword puzzle or manipulating one of those cereal box decoder rings and cracking the code. Look what I can do. Look at the secret connections I can find. It's pretty intoxicating, like finding the word that slips magically into 12 down and links with 5 and 7 across. It gives the critic all this power over the text. It makes him feel smart. And uh, that's, I feel like that passage is what I felt like when uh, I watched this movie. Like, this movie made me think 
very strongly to that passage by Ray Carney. And yeah, I just wanted to read it and get back to the calls. So, hey, James, thanks for being so patient. Feel free to unmute. You can talk about anything you want, including if you want your love of this film. Can <clears throat> you hear me okay? Uh, yeah, you sound great. Cool. So the, I just wanted to say like a couple of things that i kind of been thinking. Um, so what we're talking about is he's mostly like he writes allegories, like all his movies are allegories um, in the same way that, you know, a lot of M. Night Shyamalan's movies are allegories. And when he's not good, I think in his movies is when he's putting the themes first and everything else is just in service to the themes. Totally agree. So he, he, you know what I mean? So he doesn't spend any time doing anything else. But at the same time, I also think that if he wasn't doing that, his movies would not be nearly as popular as they are. Because he puts it right in the viewer's face, he gets buzzed all over the internet, and then people come and see the movie, and then they see the idea. So it's almost like it's, I don't know. I see what you're saying. It's almost like yeah. he's kind of backed himself into a corner almost. Like, like this kind of helps the movie become popular. He might think the same way you do, that if he doesn't do it this way, and he just is sick sincere and pulls back on all the puzzle film stuff that maybe won't be as popular. Yeah. And, but just as a structure, like you're talking about like the puzzle film, you know, it's hidden allegory, but it, 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 it doesn't have to be done badly. Like I, I think the shining is actually a really good example of allegory. That's so understated that you don't even feel it as allegory. You know what I mean? So in, in that case, it's done really well. But it can be done very badly. Like as a guy from a religious background, when I was younger, I wrote a lot. And, you know, you would just tend to, to it, like going back to what somebody else was saying about biblical language and biblical references. You know, there's, there's a cadence to the Old Testament. Somebody else said Proverbs, you know, <clears throat> and that stuff is is all very themes forward, you know. It's declarations and eternities. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and, and get off. Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think allegories are bad at all anymore. I think metaphors are bad. I think it's kind of using them as a crutch that becomes the problem. And I think also like what what the guy um said about is this sincere or does this teach me anything about life i think that's kind of the key like if you feel like because like for example i'll give you an example of a film that i think has a lot of um that stuff in it when you rewatch it is fight club but fight club whether you hate it or love it i think it's clearly trying to say something you know you might not like what it's trying to say but it doesn't exist just to be a easter egg delivery system you know, and I don't want to be as go as far as say Jordan Peele has nothing to say, but I think what he has to say gets drowned out by like like the last thing I'll say about Fight Club. Now I'll go on to Jared is um, I was thoroughly enjoying Fight Club before the twist, and if the twist 
never happened, that makes me go back and look for all the clues that Ed Norton is actually Tyler Durden. If that movie ended, you know, with that twist never happening, I would have perfectly enjoyed the movie I was watching on the first um, go around. Whereas something like The Sixth Sense, I feel like that movie was okay but forgettable until the twist. I feel like the twist kind of just elevates the movie to being something memorable versus something that you kind of just um, enjoy while you're watching and then forget about is um, my take. And The Sixth Sense I especially kind of didn't like because I guess the twist um, in the first five minutes and when you get the twist and you try to watch that movie, all the plot holes jump out at you. Like, like for example, when you when you know the twist in Fight Club, when you watch it again, I think it becomes like actually a more rewarding movie because now you're watching it in a, a separate way. But if you know the twist the first time in The Sixth Sense, to me, I think you just kind of realize, like, okay, this makes no sense. How can – is this guy's wife never really going to talk to him? He's not going to notice that she never actually says one word even – uh, ever like it just seems weird um anyway sorry uh go on jared feel free you've been very patient feel free to un unmute hey how's it going uh you're unmuted but for some reason i can't hear you i don't know why that is can anybody in the audience hear him i just want to know if it's just me I don't know if you're using a Bluetooth that needs to be disconnected and reconnected or if you want to go to the audience and come back up, maybe that'll do it, but I'll give you some time to uh, sort it out. Yeah, so, yeah, feel free to come back up. But, um, yeah, some other thoughts I had about this movie. Hold on, hold on one second. Um, yeah, some of the thoughts I had about this movie, it was, a, it was a pretty, I was just checking one more thing. I want to see if anybody, there's some people I wanted to come into the room and give their thoughts on the movie, but they're not in the audience yet. I want to invite them to the stage. Oh yeah. But, um, some of the thoughts I had about the movie was the reviews I just thought we're kind of adding to the whole Where's Waldo appeal. Like, people just kept going on to it. And I don't want to devalue Jordan Peele's thoughts. Like, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt that he has something he wants to say. But I think a big problem with Jordan Peele, uh, I know this from Keen Peele, he's a huge weed head. And he says this. He does a joke about it on the show. He mentioned it, I believe, in recent interviews. And as somebody who smoked a lot, I haven't done weed in a long time. But there's like a type of stoner deepness that you get. And I feel like there's a lot of that happening with him. He might not even smoke anymore, but he's definitely tapping. He might still smoke, he might not, but he's definitely tapping into his stoner brain. Like, I just feel like everything is made, it feels like it's made by a stoner for a stoner puzzle film. Right? So it's like, whoa, like, you know, this just blew my mind, that type of thing. And I think there was a stage in my life I would have really liked this type of movie. I mean, I did like Get Out, but that one I thought, you know, maybe because 
he had a white fiance and he was tapping into something he experienced that was like real to him. Whereas with us and with um, this one, it's a little more abstract. It doesn't feel as personal. And maybe that's where the allegories and Easter eggs kind of just take over the whole thing. But it really, really kind of left me cold. But I think if it was 90 minutes, if you just let it be some kind of Steven Spielberg um, fun little thriller, you know, without all these themes and allegories, I think it could have worked. Or if you only chose like one third of the allegories and let them breathe, you know. And uh, oh, something else too is the whole Chekhov's gun idea. You know, Chekhov's gun is this idea that um, Chekhov said if you introduce a gun in the first half, you better fire it by the third half. And a lot of people take that like very literally. And I feel like Peele is one of those people like there's a neatness to the movie and a symmetry to the movie that I think just gets too artificial and is a product of rules like that. Like, for example, the well, there's a well and there's a scene where she photobombs the well and it's like a throwaway scene. Some kids are are looking into a well. The well is actually a camera and takes a picture. And Kiki, what's her last name? I'm forgetting her name. Um, I'm drawing a blank, but the girl from Akila and the Beal, Kiki Palmer, she looks down the well to see what these white kids are looking at, and the flash goes off, and, oh, the well is a camera. And then later on, it becomes pivotal taking pictures of the monster. And... The movie's kind of full of stuff like that, where it's like foreshadowing, things that seem irrelevant end up becoming relevant um, later. And I'm like, sometimes it's better to just let the gun be on fire. You don't have to have every Chekhov's gun, you know, just be be shot off in the last uh, five minutes of the movie. So anyway, do we have anyone else? No one else has thoughts about this movie or wants to give their opinions because this is a calling show so I don't want to just do a podcast where I just talk by myself for the whole the whole time interesting so yeah I'm going to give some last thoughts and then if nobody comes up to call then we'll just call it a night but Another thing I found interesting about this thing was what a lot of reviewers uh, seem to get out of it, which is very interesting to me. Like, there's this kind of, you know, we always talk about, like, you know, Blavity, BuzzFeed, Blacks, etc. that whole idea of, like, you know, the whole uh, blue check black kind of person. And there's something I kind of notice about so-called, like, you know, blue check, BuzzFeed, down to 10 type, whatever, you, um, or as we call them as a joke sometimes on the podcast, untalented 10th, is so much of their art, there's this way in which the white people who rejected them, I don't know if it's in, whether it be in high school, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be their friends, their white roommates, their white schoolmates, who kind of rejected them and gave them their N-word wake-up call in some way. Like, I feel like 
There's a type of black person who has never been able to develop the type of entitlement to things that white people had. Like from early on, they just know I never am going to have this. I'm never going to be this. I will never be an honorary white person. That's just how things go. Oh, Jared's back. That's pretty cool. Uh, let me just finish this point and then I'll take uh, Jared. But yeah, there's a certain type of way in which I feel like, um, you know, you kind of make peace with this idea that you're never going to be um, white or even honorary white or you're never going to be entitled to the things that, you know, white people have. But I think there's a certain type of black person that grows up with white people, surrounded by them, and they don't really realize the differences yet. Like, they understand superficially, like, I'm not white. I'm not going to be white, but I'm not black either. I'm something above that. Like, maybe the white friends tell them, well, you're not like the other type of black people or the bad black people. And they might take it as a compliment even, you know, or they feel like, okay, I'm like a kind of a snowflake. You know, I'm, I'm special. I don't, I'm closer socioeconomically and status wise to these white people I hang out with um, than I am to the average black person from the hood. I listen to their music. I hang out with these people. I go to the same school. I go to the same social events. I might even end up going to the same colleges as them. And there's this type of way that to a point they develop an expectation that they're going to be welcoming into their lives the same big things that white people are. They're going to be able to marry with them freely, intermingle with them freely, and be like almost honorary white people, even if they still, I'm not saying that they're all like running away from blackness. Like, like even if they accept and, you know, are proud of being black, they still don't believe that the, the fruits of what white people have are off limits to them. And at some point something happens that makes them realize, okay, in this American society, I'm always going to be seen closer to the nigger, the bad black, than to the white person. Like, I'm just one bad move, or I'm always going to be, like, less than. I'm always going to be somehow um, otherized, you know? Like, they get little wake-up calls here and there when they interracially date, when they work in a white workplace, when they go whatever. And so much of their art, their fixations, everything is like a five-step grieving process, Um for this lost sense of honorary um, whiteness. And it animates so much of their art and it makes it... So like the person who never at any point thought I'm going to be an honorary white person never really has to fixate on that. They can fixate about what is life like with other black people? What is life like building a black community? They can make a show like Martin or Living Single just having fun with black people arguing, living, loving life with black people, things like, you know, color purple, whatever. But these people seem to only be able to make or interpret art that helps them make peace with this kind of paradise of white acceptance they've been cast out of, you know? And, and what are the five stages of grieving? Like, what's it? Denial, anger, denial, bargaining, something, and then um, acceptance. And they can't get to the acceptance part. And I noticed with all the art they like, all the art they make, all the reviews, all about 
kind of grieving like you know this inability to fully assimilate and also attacking and indicting white people why did you not give me the full um acceptance and a lot of these reviews i'm seeing about nope and others of peel's movies i kind of fixated on that this idea of um indicting white people for not not only for not accepting them, but for letting them even believe they had a chance to be a part of that world. And also like a support group for, with other black people who had the same problem. And I just get really tired of this kind of art. And I feel like Get Out came from that place to a degree. And I think he's still in that place. And the reviewers that are in the media love that space themselves. And they're all it's all these kind of black people having a conversation with each other from the reviewer space, from the creative space, et cetera. And it just kind of drains me. But um, anyway, Jared, sorry for that long spiel, but I'm going to take you now. I hope you're okay. Audio. Oh, there we go. Yeah. It sounds, sounds okay. pretty good. All right. Cool. 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 Yeah. So first, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you were saying, especially what you said about, there being like a 90, 100 minute, like just UFO movie in there. But there's something about it where it's like, he's Jordan Peele. He's like the the prodigy of like Hollywood where I feel like it's almost like an elitist flex. Like I can make a Spielberg movie, but I can make it into chapters and I can put all these Easter. It, it almost felt like what Ryan Johnson does with like Star Wars, where it's like, oh, you think I'm just gonna have Luke with a, with a lightsaber, I'm gonna throw it over. Oh, these yeah, aliens so, in the suit are I, just going to attack them. But, oh, it's people in costume. It just felt like it was just kind of like, like what you said, like a cheap trick a lot of the time. That's a great observation. I don't know. Yeah. No, no, no. no and totally. and, kind of and you said something about back. Fight Club. And I feel like Get Out, in a way, is like, is like <laughs> kind of Fight Club for liberals. It's like the people who are like the most vocal fans of that movie don't realize the movie's talking about them. But, yeah, that, that's all. <laughs> My my mute button's acting crazy. Yeah, that's a great great point. What you said, Jared, about um, what you said about how it's oh, like this fake this fake subversion. Yeah, the whole thing's acting weird, Jared. Did it let you back up here when you tried to leave? Is that what happened? Hello. Oh shit. Um. Yeah, I don't know what's happening. This thing's acting weird. So there were a lot of people who seemed to be kicked out of the caller queue, and Jared seems to be brought back in and. Yeah. If you were in the caller queue, if you were in the caller queue and you got kicked out, uh, feel free to come back up. I have no idea what what happened. There was Kamaria up there, and there were some other people. But um, Jared, I don't know if he came back up here on purpose or if it's a glitch in the system. But uh, let's see. Uh, hey, Jared, did you mean to leave, or was that a? Oh no, I think I pressed the button. Like the the leave button is like right next to the. Oh, so so you left by accident? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. You know, I was totally agreeing with what you said about like the whole phony baloney subversion. You know what I hate about the type of subversion too is that you're very much relying on the shoulders of giants to make the point to do like three quarters of the heavy lifting for the point you want to make, but you're still in a strange way trying to act like you're elevating or better than it. You know, when yeah. 
if you really want to impress me that you're better than it, then, you know, make something a little more wholly original. And this was like leaning a little too heavy on Steven Spielberg. And for no real, it reminds me of this play that I recently saw um, called Fat Ham. And it was in this weird way, trying to act like it was better than Shakespeare, but it was basically a slightly remixed version of Shakespeare. And I wasn't really sure what he was trying to say. He had this kind of weird... Like Fat Hamlet? What? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's a Fat Hamlet. And and it's like a, a blackified... It's, it's like... Uh, I think it was trying to be Tyler Perry meets uh, Hamlet. But it's also trying to act like it's somehow subverting Hamlet, but how i couldn't i couldn't tell you i don't think even even he knows and there's this weird type of mix of homage slash hostility that just doesn't really make sense to me in that type of work like for example like i'm sorry go ahead jared no no uh, i think he i think he underestimated like how actually much craft it takes to make like a big spectacle like Spielberg movie that's like simple and it's like big and like all-encompassing this just felt like I don't know. It just felt felt as big and as long as the movie was. It just felt kind of the stakes kind of felt small and like the threat after like it was spinning its wheels. Oh no! Oh, I totally agree. Uh, but I'm curious why you say you think I'm underestimating what it takes to do no, a not, Spielberg not, movie. No, not you. Not you. I think. <sighs> Oh, you think? Oh, you think Peel is? Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Yeah, I think he thinks all you gotta do is just put a couple of tropes in there, and you're a Spielberg. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. Uh, Jared, your audio is um pretty choppy, and I'm not hearing you at all, so I don't know what's happening. Okay, wait, I hear you again, but you keep cutting in and out. Okay, how about now? Okay, say something. I want to see if your audio is better. One, two, three. Okay, yeah, you sound good now. Okay, so I'm gonna let you make your whatever your final point is, and then uh, you know I'll move on to the next person. I guess I guess just like my last point is like I feel like Get Out it worked because it worked because it was just kind of tight and precise, and I and I feel like it was, it was kind of like a low budget Get Out or a low budget uh, Blumhouse thing. Where you could just kind of feel like the people reining them in, but I feel that now it's just like he's Jordan Peele. Like who's gonna tell him what to do? So you watch us and you watch this and fucking that piece of shit Candyman, and it's just like, <laughs> it's just a fucking mess. Like everything he's made. Oh yeah, the, yeah, that that movie was was yeah. awful. It was, <laughs> it was it was awful. And and he claims he has a three hour and forty five minute. Um, cut of this movie. I hope he keeps that to himself. <laughs> I, I, don't unleash that in the world. I don't... No. The world doesn't need that. Can you imagine the amount of Easter eggs in that thing? It's gonna oh be... Uh, people are never gonna shut up about it. Alright, thanks so thanks so much, Jared. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to Kamaria. I hope you don't mind, Chris, but, you know, since um, she didn't get to speak yet, I want to give her a chance, and then I'll go back to you, Chris. Hey, Kamaria, how's it going? Did you get a chance to see this movie? Can you hear me? Yeah, you sound great. Okay, yeah, I saw it, uh, like, a couple of days ago. It was really long and really slow at the beginning. I missed a lot, so I don't know if I'm repeating things that were already said. Like, I missed the call-in, but I thought something that really bothered me about the movie was, especially in the first half, is 
every scene that could have been interesting, he just jump cuts to like another scene, and it's almost like he was afraid of filming them because maybe like, for instance, like Kiki Palmer steals, like they, I think she steals like a horse, and then they just show like the horse appearing, but they don't show the actual scene of her doing it. There's, an, yeah. there's like multiple scenes where something that seems to be scary is going to happen and then it just jump cuts and it's like it almost felt like he was afraid to actually show those scenes because maybe it's something that he's never seen filmed so he wouldn't know how to film it no i think there's maybe some truth to that because a lot of stuff he was filming was uh you know a reference of an earlier film but i also think another problem he had i think it could be more than one reason i think that could be one reason but i think another reason too might be that he wanted to introduce little puzzles, little mini puzzles that where they didn't need to be. So it's like, um, what's happening with the horse? What, what did that mean? Oh, it's that horse that was at the ranch. Or, you know, because uh, the brother asked her, like, where'd you get that horse? And she's like, don't don't worry about it, you know? And then even even if it's a mystery that only lasts five minutes, I just think he likes putting little um, things he just kind of, for you to puzzle out, even if it's only for like um, thirty seconds, you know. It's... Yeah, yeah, and it I feels mean, I... like he, yeah. he he relies on that a lot for a lot of his movies. Like, not every horror movie has to be where you don't know. Like, the audience is just kept. It's like he almost thinks the audience is gonna be bored if they're not confused. So it's like they have to be confused and trying to figure everything out until the end where there's, like, a kind of a reveal of everything. It's, but not every movie has to be, though. We're like, there's a lot of movies where you kind of understand what's going on, but it's still suspenseful and interesting. I also think a lot of artists believe that if they're not confusing, they're not deep. So I think it's like they think the audience would be bored if they're not confused. And I think also, um, you know, it makes them seem deeper than, than they are. Because there's some things you watch where it's like, say they're doing a time jump and the the narrative is disjointed but if you actually think about what the story is linearly you're like oh this is actually a basic ass story it's just the fact that you told it out of order so it was confusing made it seem deeper than it was so yeah i think you're absolutely right i think that he thinks the audience is kind of bored but i also think it's a crutch for him to seem deep as well that's my uh thought yeah that makes a lot of sense and another thing that bothered me about the movie and I actually I was talking to Jeff Street about it because she was saying like the storyline that Stephen Ewan's character has is, is much more interesting and compelling and they should have probably made that the actual story but I don't even like the motivation for these people is just to get clout and get famous and it's like they're aware that 40 people have are like, they see on the news, there's a news clip that shows that 40 people are dead or missing, and they may have answers to it or clues to it, but they're not even interested in, like, giving that information to anyone. It's just, like, they just Ooh, want, like, clout or something. Great, it's so odd to me. That's a great, like, great point. I can't believe I missed that. And, and you know what's sad about me missing that? There's something that I always talk about in other movies, and I think this movie so infuriated and bored me. I didn't see it in that, but but you're right. It's something that we always talk about. I don't know if you've heard us talk about it in the show, but these people have such a weird idea of morality that when they try to write moral people, they don't understand that they're writing them doing immoral things. And I think you're absolutely right. They put, they put their own values of clout chasing and whatever into the characters, 
and thought that's actually heroic. The fact that you're you're right, they know what killed these people. But I think what the defenders in the movie would probably try to say is, oh, um, nobody with nobody meaning the white people would have believed them without the proof. So they had to do it to get people to um, believe them. And of course, getting like famous and the glory was just a, a bonus. But you're right; it so wasn't. I, I mean. They didn't even have like a concern in terms of even empathy amongst themselves. Like, oh my God, those poor people. They didn't give them even a second thought. Yeah, or even just the future of the the ranch that they're on, or any of that. Like, there was no. I don't know. It was it was so odd. But yeah, I. I that's all I pretty much had to say was like that. For me, it felt very boring too because I, I didn't care about their motivations. I don't. I don't care if someone gets famous because of that, you know, but I did think that Steven Ewan's spotlight was really interesting and it would have made a better movie. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. I think another problem too is that Steven Ewan, I think, is just a better actor and more charismatic than Daniel Kaluuya. Like, I've yeah. this burgeoning group of Daniel Kaluuya stands and I'm like, I do not understand what I mean, I think the drink Kalua has more charisma than the Kaluya guy. Like I, I don't see anything. He, he only has a range of bored and bugging his eyes out. That's the only range I've seen him have, where he just seems too bored to be in the movie. At first, I thought maybe his first movie I saw him in, Get Out, that's just a character, and he's really good at playing a nondescript, boring guy. But in everything else I've seen him in, he just really can't really emote besides yeah. I mean, the most I've seen him try to emote was in that Fred Hampton movie and he does not come close to capturing Fred Hampton's like energy and and charisma you know he still seems yeah. kind of even bored with that yeah that's why I didn't watch the Fred Hampton movie because he seems like he has no emotion so I was like I, it, it wouldn't make sense for him to play, play such a charismatic character but yeah like and I feel like it's a thing, too, that they do. It's, like, similar to Atlanta, where something that's very um, subdued and vague is, or like, pro- they get, people project a lot of deepness into it. I think they do that with Daniel Kaluuya, because he shows no emotion, and you, and you don't understand what's really going on with his character or its development, but you can just project whatever ideas you want on it. It's very interesting that Steele picks him a lot in his movies. What did you think about Kiki Palmer's character? Because she felt like an annoying Twitter person. Like, like she was she was black, female, and queer. But the Twitter, what, what Twitter thinks those things are supposed to be to me, like, like she felt a little flat and stereotypical to me. Like, I was expecting her to start saying Twitterisms, like you know, not blank, blank, blank. You know, like that that catchphrase or something. It, I don't really know what to make. I don't know if she was bringing that herself as an actress or if Peel was writing that, but she seemed like a caricature of a black queer woman that you would see on uh, Twitter. And it was really annoying to me. I think it would have been nice to have a black uh, female gay character that felt like a person. But between Daniel Kaluuya's total flatness and then her kind of two-dimensional like, like like here's a couple of reasons why she felt like a twitter caricature of one of these people because first off she comes out she has like 12 hustles she's like um hey i do this 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 and that you know and i'm like okay so you're a multi-hyphenate you know like like um 
is that what he's trying to get at? And then her kind of forced um, sister girl kind of act. Like, the two accents didn't seem to match. He had a really kind of country, bumpkin, slow, lethargic accent. And then she has this kind of um, fast-talking, city slicker like kind city of... Like city girl, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, you two aren't matching at all. Just when she just came straight from, like, you know... Um, Black queer female blue check um, Twitter performatively doing Ebonics. And he seems like he just came from a, a ranch and he's taking it slow, chewing on a piece of hay. And yeah, it was just a weird mix to me. Because their performances were so um, contrasting, it made them, it made the performances feel even worse to me because. Uh, was, I didn't hear what you said after because uh, you said it made it feel worse to you because and then it, and then uh, it went out. Oh, I said because. Oh, yeah, I don't remember. But I was saying that because their characters are so contrasting, it makes their performances both feel like worse. Because I mean, I was I was expecting Kiki Palmer's character to be like that because that's kind of how she is in real life too. So I wasn't surprised by it or anything, but. In comparison to Daniel Kaluuya's performance, it made both of their performances kind of annoying. So that's all yeah, I can I, say. Like, yeah, I don't oh, know. Yeah. I don't know much about Kiki Palmer and how she is in real life because honestly, I haven't seen many of her movies since Akila and the Bee. So that makes sense if that's what she's uh, really like. But it just felt like very forced to me, like like um, someone trying to like, really. Uh, too hard. So that's, that's interesting that she's really like that because she's like one of those yeah. people that's always on. Like it, I think she she was like a child star, so it always feels like she's kind of performing even when she's not mm. acting. But like her perform. I mean, I I mean she's a very like to me charismatic person, but she feels like those type of people that were child stars and are always kind of in a performance mode. I could dig her with a better script and better direction. Like I feel like uh, Key just. Um, Peel just threw her out there and wrote her this like uh, caricature script and if she's already an animated person you know sometimes you need someone that can kind of I think kind of balance you out or whatever and I, I don't think Peel seems he seems like as a director he's just someone who's in his head and just he wants to put his puzzle pieces together and I don't think he actually knows how to direct people and pull humanity out of people he just who wants to get his tricks on, on film, and I think both these actors could have used some better direction to kind of create some kind of convergence between them, you know, and make them seem like a family. I never bought these people as a, as a family. I guess is uh, my problem. Yeah, and, and it's like Daniel Kaluuya's performance is so flat that I don't even, I can't even really feel like I get his grief over his dad, and then. It's like Kiki Palmer is so animated. It's like she doesn't even care that her dad died. So yes. Like, I thought so that perfect. too. I, she, she, she's acting like he's such a sourpuss. I started thinking, is that her stepdad? Like, why is she so, like, you know, whatever about it? Why, why does she have no grief? And it was, but it was kind of weird because even his grief seemed more about the deaths that, and I think it, left, it, add more, it added to the idea that these people don't care about anything. Remember, he said they don't really care about the ranch. It seems like he was more bummed out about, being stuck with the debts 
and and having to pay it off that the father left. And he kind of was like mad at the father for leaving him with debts. More than he seemed to really miss the father as a loving human being. And I don't think either of them had any really great memories of the father. Her only story about the father was taking away her horse. Yeah. And he's talking mostly about the father uh, leaving him with debts. So, yeah, I'm not really sure just how aggrieved even he was about, you know, the father's debt versus just the... He was more worried about the father's debts than the father's death, I would say. That's that's what... Yeah. Uh, you know, and and if, it, re- it reminds me of, I think, what you guys... I think you guys talked about it in one of the pods about regular jobs not being, like, um, glamorous. And so everyone wanting to just be, like, a clout chaser or be online. It's like when he has to do the actual work on his own, he, like, I know he's grieving, but it's also, like, you're not going to, like, try to at least, like, do this job. <laughs> like, you, you have the ranch for one purpose. There's, that's literally the only thing you can do with these courses. Like, it just was very interesting. Yeah, and it was weird because they seem to be trying to say that the white people on the set were jerks and whatever. And to a degree, they were jerks and they were demeaning or whatever, but he wasn't helping it by being so incompetent at the job. Like, like you know, like he seemed to look bad on the job himself. So it doesn't even make, it'd be one thing if he was like really doing his best and was really engaging the job and they're treating him like less than, I could can, I can get it. But he's bored and checked out of this job that he claims that um, he needs to save the ranch. And she is more focused on the um, networking and selling her side businesses. So she's actually engaged and, and, you know, excited, but not about the boring actual job. A, she even says later on, no, this is my side gig, the horse thing. Yeah. So both of them are detached from the main job that they're to do in different ways. Him because he's boring and flat and checked out and her because she's already on to her next thing as a multi-hyphen and trying to network by the craft table. And, and can you imagine, but, like, he chastises her for not, like, for coming late. and But he's, like, reliant on her to give a very, like, basic spiel about safety. And yeah. he gets mad at her, but he's on the way to selling another horse. It's like, you're not even trying, and you're so quick to just sell these horses <laughs> to someone. Like, it was so, I don't know, so odd. And, and- and you're so like half ass at explaining anything. Like people are trying to put mirrors in the horse face. Like no, 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 don't, don't, don't. And he's calling to her to save him. Come here. No, no, no. And then everything goes goes wrong. And it's like, okay, well, we're supposed to think these white people are jerks and they're uh, dismissing you because you're black and you have your job. But you're also like horrifically incompetent. And somebody could have got kicked by that horse by your, you know horrible way you were doing the job so yeah I, I don't know there's just so many flaws uh in this movie but um i was gonna go on to chris but i wanted to let you get any last words that you might have had yeah i mean i don't have anything else to say that was it i, I just thought it was oh you know another thing the only last thing i wanted to say was even the whole point like well, there was no point in having those chapters besides being like an homage to other directors who have chapters and like everything just yes. felt like it was it was like is it your movie or is it just like everyone nowadays is doing movies that are owed to movies instead of just like their own movie 
And that's the last yeah, thing yeah, I yeah, yeah. To say. Instead of movies based on life, it's movies based on other movies. You know what really made that popular is Quentin Tarantino, and I believe it's called um, pastiche. I think that's what that technique is called. And there's just so much pastiche out there, and nobody even challenges anymore. It's just a normal way. I suppose you can put Roman numerals before each chapter of Division 2 just to make it extra, you know, pretentious. But it was uh, pretty bad. Um I'm going to read from one of the reviews. Um, hey, hey, Chris, you can feel free to jump in uh, on this, too. But I'm going to read from one of the reviews, and this is one of the reviews that really likes the film, but treats it like a Where's Waldo hunt. And that spiel that I gave before, but I feel like the people who make these type of films and the people that it's made for have these weird grievances with, um, like, white people live in their white liberals that they went to school with or went to work with or whatever, live in their minds rent-free 24-7. And then they need to exercise these demons from them so they can see what they have to say. Like, there's so much stuff like this. Like, on, on Broadway, when I saw Slave Play, the whole thing was basically a uh, uh, struggle, you know, of dealing with these kind of people. A lot of these plays, a lot of these movies, a lot of these books are all about, you know... but. Uh, check out for this review is yeah, from see, Hollywood. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. One thing I just wanted to, it's funny you circle around this. Like, first of all, I just wanted to say to Kamara, everything she said, I agree with. Totally, she, totally. She, she, she had always, a, she's always on point. That was she saying. so many good points in there, and I didn't even realize about the people that were missing. Um, yes. I, I missed that. Um, but good point. When you were talking, I wanted to talk about this, but the assimilation art, when you were talking about that, you know, like, you know, I grew up, like, I grew up in the suburbs of Long Island, and, you know, I had, you know, like, it was, it's a mixed area, right? And, you know, I had, like, white friends and black friends, but, you know, I didn't know anybody, like, who had, who was, like, just obsessed with, like, I gotta get access to, to, to the white things and all that, you know? And it's just, it's just very weird, and I just don't know where this comes from, but it's all over the place. It's like, all the art now is like, it's not for black, you know, it's not like Martin or something, or yeah. an old show that is for, that is for black people. It's about black people. It, yeah, you know? and those breeders, they're the ones who always talk about the white gays, the white gays, but I think it's because they almost feel guilty. It's almost like, you know... Some creep is like, um, you know, you say, you say this to one, uh, hey, that's a pretty nice van there. He goes, yeah, I don't, I don't molest kids in it. It's like, wait, what, what the fuck you say that for? <laughs> and no one said anything like that. <laughs> like, like, why would yeah. you pre- Now I'm thinking maybe you molest kids. Like, like why, would, why, would be the first, why would that be the first yeah. thing you say? And I feel like that's how they are. We're always talking about, we're not, we're not doing this for the white gays. I'm like, why do you keep saying that all the time? And it makes me realize, okay, maybe you're just feeling guilty because you are doing it for the white gays. And that's why you have to keep <laughs> preemptively announcing all the time before anybody says anything. Um, yeah, but I grew up in uh, Long Island, too, in high school. I was in Nassau County. I was in uh, Elmont. And um, it's like, it's it's integrated. And there's white people there. But I think when you hear these people's stories, their thing is, I mean, I don't know where in Long Island you were, but I mean... I think their things are like, okay, I was literally the only white person in the whole senior class type of um, oh, okay. mixed experience. Because whenever you hear these people's quote-unquote origin stories or whatever, it's always like they had like one or two in the whole class, sometimes the whole uh, school 
and you know they discovered their blackness and um so i don't think these people even had like the black the black lunch tables in high school or anything oh, okay. like that like 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 that's for example like uh peel himself he um has a white mom and a black dad but i believe he doesn't know his black dad and he grew up in manhattan on the upper west side going to like uh, white schools living with his with his white mom you know so uh, i think these people have a it's not just a diverse or integrated experience. I think they actually could never even form a black experience within the black, within the white experience. Like, you know, like, like I went to a predominantly white school, but we were able to form like a black student union and have black sections of the cafeteria or black parties. I feel like these people, um, didn't have that. They were, they were in like 99%, um, white spaces. And I think, those are the spaces that kind of make you start thinking, you know, I um, am one of these people. I don't, I'm the same class as these people. I have the same destiny as these people. And um, I'm just going to read real quick this from this review. We're not going to read the whole thing, but it, I find it very interesting. Uh, in this age of quote unquote content geared toward quote unquote consumers, this is a Hollywood reporter and the guy's called Richard Newby. And all his articles are about um, representation and IP, and he's just a cheerleader for representation. Uh, in this age of content geared toward consumers in which almost every experience, the beautiful, the tragic, and the horrific, is made public and packaged for our entertainment, we've allowed ourselves to depersonalize and otherize for the sake of entertainment. We've allowed screens to create a barrier between us and them. Hollywood feasts on a minority experience. It always has. Nope provides a history lesson in that sense with Edward Mebridge's The Horse in Motion, the first motion picture. While Mebridge is known by the film scholars and enthusiasts, the name of the black jockey, the quote-unquote first movie star, as the film puts it, has been lost to history. The jockey's descendants, O.J., Daniel Kaluuya, and Emerald Haywood, Kiki Palmer, who stand at the center of Nope, have sought to reclaim that legacy after their father, Otis, Keith David, is killed by... Um, falling metal debris, a token, a coin to be exact. As Hollywood horse trainers, the Haywoods have um, barely managed to get by, forced to sell half of their horses to feed others. In an industry largely driven by nepotism, it speaks volumes that the Haywood have been forced to remain in their place, tied down and unable to move on up in the entertainment industry. And when I read this, I'm like, okay, this is not a review. You're kind of, I sound like you feel like you're using this movie to rant about something that's personal to you. Like, <laughs> this movie has allowed you to channel your own, like, bitterness. Like, you know, talking about, he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, this movie's about how uh, tokens and you get, and you don't get to climb and there's an industry different by nepotism. And I was thinking to myself, okay, that horse in motion is not that central to what's happening in this movie for you to be so fixated um, on that. And then, he moves on. Like During a shoot for the commercial, OJ attempts to impart safety guidelines to the crew about the horse, Lucky, such as not standing behind him or looking in the eye. But the director and crew mock the rules, and OJ giving him and his sister the same amount of respect as the horse. These individuals are simply things to look at, to, tools in the creation of content. I'm okay, dude, you're talking about yourself right here, you know? <laughs> Like these people are not content creators. Like, like what, what the hell does that mean? Uh, these horse trainers are not tools in the creation. I guess he means like they're tools in the creation of their own content. But crew members treat them as subservient in ways that others can witness, allowing them to elevate their own position. 
when living creatures, be they human or animals, are made a spectacle of, they are diminished, reduced entertainment, currency exchange for status. And he just keeps going on and on, describing every person's grievances as it seems like a disguised way to complain about his own attempts to break into writing and and entertainment and whatever. And I'm just like, okay, dude, work out your therapy and come back to this page and do a review. Like, like, <laughs> but I started realizing, okay, that's what this, this is to them. This is just a way for, this is what they want from their art, something to validate and affirm their grievances, to validate that you're right to be aggrieved. These white people have kept us from shining as well as we can. And everything he talks about in here is cheering any type of indictment of um, white people and the way they, they exclude. And kind of like what Kamari and I were just talking about, about how incompetent they were at the shoot, he doesn't bother to bring up, which I think is kind of uh, important context. But all he sees is, I think, how they were mistreated because that's kind of the chip on his shoulder he's walking through uh, life with. But it's just a boring way, I think, to make and consume uh, art art to me. And I'm just like, just find a way to get white people out of your mind for like 24 hours and just create something that, you know, is about you. Like, who are you without white people around? Like, it's like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, does anybody hear it? I think these people like, if I do anything where a white person isn't there to tell me what they thought about it, you know, did it happen? You know, that's how I feel they look through life. Okay, I'm how sorry. Did, I'm done with my life. How did these people seem to take over everything? It seems like like nothing is just like you know a movie that or a piece of art that's just trying to entertain people. You know everything is like a message about you know how you know I can't assimilate or whatever. You know it's like it seems like that happened in the last I don't know maybe twenty years. That happened. I think that I don't know, but. Well, I mean, one theory I have is that uh, because these people grew up in those spaces, they know how to network with and make white people comfort comfortable. That probably helps. Like, these are probably like the only black people a lot of these white people actually know. <laughs> like, you know, so <laughs> yeah, so either they literally know the white people in charge, or they grew up in the same spaces as the white people in charge and know people like those uh, white people. And that's the only guess I have. Like, I think the only this- person that could think think of who's really really big who kind of breaks this mold is uh, i mean as bad as his craft is but as far as like uh as far as like big money maker creators of content is a uh, tyler perry i mean his craft is like horrible but he pretty much made plays for like the um chit, chit and circuit as they call it the the gospel play uh circuit and he just made so much money that hollywood couldn't um ignore him but I hate I, to think that those are... that's what I'm saying acrimony mm-hmm. was amazing acrimony was amazing oh oh yeah 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 I love, <laughs> I love acrimony it's uh it's one of the best bad movies I've ever uh I've ever seen it, it's it's like right up there with the room it's amazing yeah and and the best thing about that is there's, there's some kind of insight in that movie that's so buried in so much badness it's like <laughs> I just I love I love that dude like invents a, a, a perpetual motion machine. 
I, you know, you know, acrimony, you know, acrimony feels like the perpetual motion machine is is a great thing, and also like just how he just suddenly is is like has stock options and just one one good pitch. Uh, you ever have someone tell a story, like little kids tell stories like this, where the story is just one giant sentence? Like, so I went to the street and there was somebody there, and then he did this, and then I went down there, and then blah, blah, blah. that is the movie version of a kid telling that story. It's just like one giant run-on sentence. Like the plot just keeps going, and you just think like, okay. There's no like traditional three act structure, first act. There's no setup, conflict, resolution. It's just one giant run on sentence, and then it just runs out of breath, and the movie ends. You know, it's like it's one linear shot up, you know, of rising action, rising action, rising action. Okay, I'm exhausted. This is a good place to end the movie. Okay, goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Weird movie. Yeah. Uh, he's amazing. He's a mad genius in uh in his own in his own way. Yeah. Uh, oh gosh. Yeah, but every review I've been reading about this is about how the movie talks about tokenism and blah blah blah. I'm like, okay, reviewer, I get it. This movie lectures white people on something, and that's great. But there's got to be more than that to to me. Like I'm, I mean, I think us probably did the least lecturing of white people, but even that, I think, still had some of that. It tried to do it on class. I don't know. I, I just think he's got to figure out what he believes in or cares about and make a movie about that. And, and cause with get out, I think that's what he was doing and it worked for him. And you see, he, mm-hmm. Go ahead. do you think there is there, uh, the, this, this assimilation art, like, is there some sort of, you know, is, 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 is there's the sentiment, like, are people like kind of get, uh, I guess our black people, like in general, do you, do you think, people getting tired like do we recognize this a thing and we're getting tired of it now you know what does anybody in the audience have any thoughts about this because like what... i'd like i'd like i'd also like to hear other people's thoughts because i'm like yeah 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 because i don't want to speak for everybody you know because yeah. maybe some people like this stuff you know i mean on, if you go by twitter which i i think is a vocal minority i'm never sure how much of twitter is like you know the real world but people seem to really love this um, assimilation art on there, you know. But then you look at the ratings for these shows, they talk about 24-7, and the shows have, like, really, really minuscule ratings. And you're wondering why or how it even was kept on the on the air. So, yeah, I have no idea. Uh, like, like uh, New York on the cover, I looked up the ratings of New York on the cover, which when it was on was, like, the number one and number two rated show in black and Latino households. And... That show is something like five million viewers, and ended up getting can- canceled. You know, and people would well, kill for people would kill for that type of viewership now. Uh, but these shows that people act like have redefined blackness in Hollywood and made it cool for, for people to be black and are groundbreaking. Like people talk about Insecure is, um, you know, it was a game changer and you know made by made mainstream notice uh, uh, black people and gave them like exposure and then at the end of that show like it was averaging like 200,000 people an episode and it's like okay like these shows are more written about than any other black shows in human history and nobody watches them you know there's so much self-congratulation if you were to go by the self-congratulation that you see dedicated to these shows you would think these shows were setting new records of viewership that you can imagine but I mean in, in the way they are they're making new records of, of low low viewership they're breaking those kind of records but yeah, lately like, like, I've been 
I've been going back and watching like uh, like I, on Amazon, like I have like the the Brown Sugar Channel and just watching like old movies, you know, like Friday Foster and stuff like that. And you could see the difference of just like this is just a movie with black people in it. It's not a movie about like everything has got to be about like oh my god, it's so hard out here and I can't get this and I'm sick and tired, you know. Yeah, like, good entertainment. Or even if it was about being discriminated by um, on by white people, the black experience was still kind of centered in it. Like it wasn't, they weren't defined by you know you know like the way these ones are, where it's like uh, you know if if we don't get this acknowledgement, like we don't view ourselves as human. Like like we need this for our own uh, self esteem, as opposed to. Yeah, I know who I am. I'm I'm proud of who I am, but these white people, you know, um are making my life hard. Like like I could deal with that, but these things are just like I don't know how to define myself if I cannot be accepted by um these white people. I think like that's what happens in a lot of these things and I just think it's just a weird type of uh but one thing in general these people do that I can't stand, they always act like the representation that is so important is for the kids. And but the more you hear them talk or write, you started realizing, no, this is really for you. Like they're always talking about, yeah, we need representation because it's so important for kids. And they've said it so often that even white people I know will say stuff like that. They're like, yeah, I'm really glad about this um, movie that's coming out because they know it's so important for kids to see themselves. And I'm like, I used to watch Spider-Man cartoons and all this stuff, and I never just thought, damn, it sucks that there's no. I'm like, yeah, this is white people stuff, and you know, it's fun to watch, and I can also watch um, something with black people in it, and enjoy that, enjoy that too. Like, you know, I, I wasn't sitting there thinking like, damn, I feel suicidal. I don't, you know, see my see myself in this uh, Spider-Man cartoon, but I think these people, that's their issue. You know, these people that grew up like that, and. They act like they're doing it for kids, and the kids are kind of like the shield. Cause I think on some level they feel embarrassed to say, "Yeah, hey, actually, I as a 35 year old adult <laughs> needed to see myself in Black Panther. I needed to see myself in the Avengers, you know, to um, you know get through this week." Yeah, do I don't you think know. That, yeah, like what you said, like, do you think this is a like an like? Cause I know a lot of these people will go to like Ivy's. So, like, is it like sort of like your? kind of in this elite status and then you just can't get there wait wait well you know it's it's kind of weird right uh this is my personal thought i'm curious if anyone else has thoughts about this too i don't want to act like i'm a know-it-all you know this is just me on the outside looking in like people mention ivies a lot but there's also these schools that they call like lesser ivies that you know um i know a lot of these people come from there's also like these schools that are not Ivies, but are like um, these liberal art colleges that are small, like Oberlin and and those type of schools where um, a lot of people come from. And there's a lot of prestige connections and stuff that happens at those liberal art colleges. They're very underrated for uh, producing like a lot of successful people, especially in the in the arts. I know a lot of those people go there, but something else that quiet is kept man is a lot of these people go to places like Howard and and mm. and HBCUs and that part kind of surprised me when I saw how many people cuz i was imagine that these HBCUs were like a corrective to that but one of the sad things i think i've kind of 
noticed from just anecdotally and looking the past couple of years, especially once they realized how many people went to Howard and started reading their personal essays. One, one good thing about these people, if you want to study them, their favorite topic to talk about is themselves. So they're always writing endless first-person memoirs and essays. They don't do a lot of hard journalism. They don't do a lot of really hard opinion pieces. Even when they do opinion pieces about ostensibly about something else, they always have as a blankety black, 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 you know, and then they give the, the whole bio. They have to somehow make everything about them, even if they want to talk about, like, abortion or politics or, you know, whatever. They can't just talk as detached observer sharing their thoughts. They always have to personalize it. So you can get a lot of their bios. And uh, a lot of them, like when they went to Howard, these uh, HBCUs, they always had the same story. They were the only black person in their high school or growing up. And then they discovered their blackness by going to someplace like Howard or Morehouse or something. And then seeing that for the stories kind of made me realize, okay, if you're discovering your blackness by college, it seems like it's too late at that point. It seems like if it doesn't happen by high school, even if you, and I don't mean it to be like, you know, disparaging or hopeless or try to gatekeep anybody's blackness. I just giving my observation um, from just reading a lot of these people's stories. It seems like um, it's a lot harder if it doesn't happen by college. That's just my observation. Uh, people are free to agree or disagree. If you disagree, I would love to hear why, because I could totally be wrong about this, and I want to um, figure out the answer, because it does kind of bother me uh, to see all this art that they're producing, this kind of hegemonic hold they have over the 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 race discourse but but yeah i mean i think the ivies are important i think the lesser ivies are important i think the liberal art colleges are important i think all that stuff is important but i think when you have this mindset you can be found um anywhere including including um uh in hbcu uh a co-host of the show made this point um I think it's true. It's either Mario or Kenny. I forget which one. But they said that a lot of times there's two people that end up in this kind of route. There's the person that grew up around no black people, right? Maybe like a handful, you know, except for maybe like their family. But the other person is the person that grew up like in the hood, but they were never allowed to play outside. Like they were bused to an outside school. Their uh, parents, or maybe they grew up with their grandparents, told them don't hang out with those kids in the corner. They're bad don't hang out with the local. So they they grew up in a black community or the hood, but they were trained to be uh, scared or not part of the um, neighborhood. And when they said that, I think it was, I think it was Mario that said that. Uh, I noticed that's true. That is the second most popular origin story uh, that gets kind of underweight. Um, Chris, we're going to move on to Bernard, and yeah. I think we're going to end it. I think we're end it with Bernard, but I will let you give any last words that you have. Okay. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, I was just curious about that because you know, like you know, clearly I have my, uh, you know, my my my, my picture is a, and my name is based on a Lindsey Buckingham joke. So even I'm looking at these guys, people like, man, this is this is this is weird to me. <laughs> Everyone's just <laughs> fixated. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, yeah, I'm yeah. Let, I'm going to step down and let Bernard talk, man. Thank you. Sure, no problem. Uh, thanks, Chris. Uh, hey, Bernard, we're going to end it with with you. So, uh, you know, 
I was not going to bring the heat, so I don't have to worry about it. I don't even have to tell you to, to make sure it's good. All right, so I, you know I probably have a slightly different take, and I wonder if um, some of this desire to just be seen or, or represented in these films or television series also just kind of represents like a, um, a desperation on the part of millennials, especially millennial black people, like people in my age range, I'm like 32, where you do, regardless of your origin, whether you came from the hood and you were not able to play with other kids or you were able to play with other kids or you got busted at different school or you didn't, like you do everything that society told you to do, like to get access, whether that's go to an Ivy, Ivy Plus, LEC, whatever, um, or a good HBCU, which used to be tied to very strong professional outcomes right like and then you kind of i feel like the millennial generation is kind of seeing that deteriorating so i can imagine that you have some millennials that are going to look for super official metrics of the idea that there's still hope for us like so like maybe i can just cling to some hope if i see us on the big screen or whatever like like i think there's just something deeper at play here that kind of reflects where the economy has gone and how Serious the situation is for even like college grads or even people. Wait, 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 wait! You just started getting muffled. I don't know if the no. mic moved away from your mouth. Oh yeah, can you sound clear again? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm saying like so. Even people like me who are in graduate school right now, it's like things are looking kind of precarious for people like my generation and younger. Now I don't cling on to the representation thing, but like I can see. I can kind of see how and why many people might. You you just kind of want to see some hope on the screen. It's also why, like a lot of black people, we don't like seeing um, television shows that actually represent our lives. We like aspirational TV that features black people. Things like Blackish, maybe even wasn't that that show um, called um, Black AF or something on Netflix? People some people enjoyed that. Like yeah. But but I will say this: uh, we had we always had aspirational uh, shows like like for example, um, I agree with the the, asp- the aspirational stuff. But the Jeffersons, even though they lived in an all white building or whatever, it was a different type of aspirational than Black AF and and Blackish. Like there was this way in which George Jefferson and Wheezy did not have this identity anxiety you know and even the even both shows blackish okay that's how black do i feel i feel blackish like right in the title of the show is um you know the identity anxiety and then the other one black af is almost an overcompensation like oh wait no i don't feel blackish i feel black as fuck and but both of them come from the same problem either whether you're surrendering to the identity anxiety or you're overcompensating by it. But um, the George Jefferson, George Jefferson and Wheezy never had to say that they're blackish. They never had to say, oh, we're super black or we're unapolog- they're unapologetically black. They just existed among um, the white people. And then the, even if they had struggles with like uh, occasional racism and stuff or whatever, they never had a doubt about who they were. They were um, two people from Harlem who um, worked hard and, you know, moved on up. So I agree with you about the aspirational stuff, but the definition of what success is seems um, 
very different. Like the relationship that Kenya Barris and um, has in Black AF to his white um, counterparts is very different than um, George Jefferson walking around calling everybody honky and and you know arguing with white people and treating them like you know they're beneath him. You know. Now the Jeffersons that was um, that based in New York City. Yeah, it's based in uh, New York City, and they lived on the Upper East Side. I'm just wondering, like, you know, I'm wondering if things in the rest of the United States are kind of, like, more integrated today than even back then to the point where, you know, if you are in certain spaces, especially if you enter higher education spaces, you might experience some identity anxiety. Like, I never really did because... I when I was like in high school, middle school, elementary, first of all, they were all mostly black. And then maybe in high school, I had kind of like a, a mixture of friends. But ultimately, my family, which is all black, like is the closest thing that I had. But I can imagine, you know, some people from I don't want to say the suburbs. I want to say the white suburbs because like I'm from Georgia and the suburbs does not mean what people portray it to be when they say that like you can have a lot of ghetto bird for example oh oh but, yeah yeah and, and also there's plenty of uh city places where there's not a single um you know there's parts of brooklyn where there's like no black people around these days post especially post-gentrification anything can mean anything yeah like, i just wonder i do have to wonder what's giving us anxiety but i i do think it's like part of it must be some economic forces and and maybe how um, identity politics is played out um, maybe in the higher government where it looks like liberals are trying and corporations are trying to pretend to care about our issues like once you start saying stuff like that you're gonna wonder like oh okay like if they really care why how come we don't really see us in this phase and that phase and x y and z you want to believe that what they told you is true um, I don't know. I've never been that naive. I'm just trying to imagine how other people would imagine. Well, in my well one theory I have, and I don't—I never believe there's one answer to everything. So when I say this one theory, I don't mean to think like I have some kind of decoder ring key that has the answer. I think it's just one factor. That's probably just one among many. But uh, I think integration had a lot to do with it in that I feel like before it used to be really a lot harder to integrate into places. So a lot of times um, black people just tried to do the best they could in the neighborhoods that they, that they had, you know, and if you were trying to be like the first black family in some like, you know, white neighborhood, like back in the days when they used to have all those housing covenants and all that stuff, you used to deal with a lot of stuff. And now it's not really like that. I mean, I'm not going to say that the discrimination and everything is gone, but it isn't like the, the type of horrible stuff that you see here. Black people had to like go through to move into like um, white spaces. And I think the easier it got to do that, I just think we have so we now have the opportunity to have so many black people who are the only black family in the town, the only black kid in the school, the only, you know, whatever. And it used to be before you could be like black middle class, black upper middle class, and you still kind of lived in a community that was like one third and higher uh, black. But now, I mean, there's a lot of people who I think their biggest goal was to get um, away from a black neighborhood and 
moved to a white neighborhood. That's where the resources are. That's where the schools are. And it probably got really bad during the crack era. Like, you know, um, that that's something that I think people probably really wanted to move away from the um, city for, you know. And I know for, for black people, the dream in the 80s and 90s was the suburbs. Like, that was like the big the big yep. thing in, in, in New York. Everybody wanted to go to Long Island, um, go to the suburbs, you know, and it was a sign. And what's funny is like uh, all the families I know that went to the suburbs, all the other black people followed them in all those places are now majority uh, black. Like like um, when when my parents went to the suburbs when I um, was in was in high school, it was. Still a decent amount of black people there. It was majority white, but there was still a amount of um, black. Pe- there was still a amount of black people there, because, but that was the, that was the definition of a good neighborhood. A, a neighborhood that had like um, mostly white people. But you go to the neighborhood now after gentrification, uh, mom's neighborhood is basically all black, and all the white people moved back into the city. And I feel like that's kind of what black people do. They just which way did the white people go, and they and they chase them, and. They're so busy chasing them that they don't even think about what did we leave behind and what are we walking them into? Because now when you, this is like the first generation, I think, growing up, like these millennials of this whole swath of kids whose parents had no bigger goal than to get them away from um, the so-called Pookie and Ray Rays. And now these kids have a whole different set of anxieties. And, you know, people are starting to wonder, like, was it? Was it worth it? Like, like they're traumatized by this thing that, you know, the parents only saw the good part of, but they still clearly have been inculcated with enough disdain for regular black folk that reconnecting with them scares them even more. So they're in this weird limbo. And I don't know if any of that answers your your question, but yeah, I think, yeah, basically, I think that kind of uh, explains where what kind of what I was thinking it's just like I do wonder about regional effects like I wonder if we listen to a lot of these like lively blacks or the people that have that issues if they tend to be from certain regions like um maybe up north where you are the mid-atlantic or maybe the midwest or the pacific northwest because like I don't know I, the way you just described what happened to your mom and all the black people who moved to the suburbs it sounds kind of similar to the South, but the thing is, like, if you look at a southern city, they mostly just look suburban. I mean, like, yeah. it doesn't really mean anything to move to a suburb. And I can tell you that what happened in Atlanta is kind of what you described. Like, the blacks wanted to go to the suburbs. So if you go, like, to certain areas of the south side of metro Atlanta, you will find some very nice black neighborhoods um, that were white or mixed at one point in time but then the whites moved to the north of the metro um and now you have this and of course once they did that the wealth was depleted out of those areas because you know we deteriorated so if you go there you'll see nice houses you're not going to see good schools um you're not going to see good amenities or anything like that in those areas but now you're getting an interesting thing where indeed the whites are going back into the city proper but they're also starting to come, they start to gentrify some of the black suburbs. And I don't know if that's a thing that's happening like in other cities, but it, it was really interesting because I went back like two or three weeks ago for a family meeting and I'm like, oh shoot, there are like whites coming in the like mm. deteriorating, <laughs> you know, like black suburbs. Um, and well, I wonder what this means for us. <laughs> like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. 
I've started seeing that too, like in Jamaica, Queens and stuff, in these places in Queens where, you know, a lot of white people didn't want to go. Like the, the gentrification has been such a smashing success that even um, white people are starting to get priced out, you know? So they're starting to push back out. I, I wonder myself, where's going to be left for black people um, to go? Like, like where my um, mom lives, even though it uh, became like majority black and everything, it's not like, you know, it became dangerous or anything. Like, like the black people there are mostly like working class and middle class uh, black people. They mow their lawns. They send the kids. And interestingly, uh, the school is actually pretty good. It's a majority black school in my mom's neighborhood. Same school that I went to high school in. Um, when I went to high school, it was probably like forty to fifty percent black when I was there. And now it's basically just like all black and it's actually a better school now. It's, it, every year they have a couple of kids uh, who get accepted to all the Ivies um, almost almost every every year. And and uh, people even start studying the school. Like, why does the school um, do do so well and everything? But it's what's interesting is people will still kind of in a strange way. Um, it's not going to like a high demand place to live in still because it's still. I think the optics, I think this is how American society is, the optics of a all-black neighborhood, people will still act like somehow the neighborhood deteriorated, even though nothing's really gotten tangibly worse about it as far as, like, being dangerous or anything or the schools going going to crap. But, like, you know, maybe somebody's playing hip-hop music too loud when, when there's something. It's, it's very interesting to see how the neighborhood is still kind of perceived to have deteriorated even if there's no actual tangible thing that can that can point to and i think a lot of black people even think that way i think there's a lot of black people who are like yeah this i wouldn't i wouldn't want to live here even like i think black people used to want to go to those suburbs because they're like i have to go to this place to get a good school i have to go to whatever but i think some people even if you put them in a neighborhood like, like my mom's they still think my kids need proximity to white people to unlock something i don't know what it is but you know maybe connections maybe whatever and stuff but there's a way in which a certain type of uh socially aspirant black person i'll give an example to be specific um there was a writer um for slate who was writing about um you know uh white kids being let into these uh, no, black kids being let into these Brooklyn schools and basically these white parents like Samantha B types were trying oh. to keep they're trying to keep uh, black students out of these schools from being bust in and they're trying to say oh we're not racist it's about you know the scores and this and that and then he, uh, he wrote this piece that was like there's all these studies that show that um, there's intangibles that white kids get from diversity and whatever and you know it helps them become like more socially this and this and that and he's just trying to make this case for how the white kids were going to get something almost through osmosis from the being around the black kids but i felt like the argument he was really trying to say uh, the fact that he, that he thought the most important thing was to kind of prove how exposure was going to help the black was help the white kids through osmosis kind of betrayed that he probably thought the same thing in reverse, you know, 
uh, that uh, it was important for these white, like to me, my whole thought is, you know, fuck the white parents. If they don't want to let the kids in there, why do you want to send your kids there? But his first thought was to kind of prove, like, by osmosis, these, being around these uh, black kids was going to um, help them be something that's going to make them intangi- intangibly better and help them, you know, succeed in, in the world. And I'm thinking, okay, so he probably thinks the same thing in in um, reverse. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, you can find some black areas with, with good schools, you know, like, like where uh, my mother lives, but... That's not downtown Brooklyn or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the thing. Um, so it's dynamics that you describe just like that that I can I can't relate to with so much. Um, and I don't want to call Atlanta black mecca because I don't think a black mecca exists in the U.S. But I would say that like even if the schools aren't good in the black areas, it's kind of like there are enough black people there to kind of form some type of professional network or some sort of network to help people out regardless of how they do in high school as in like it seem like you won't be able to access a certain professional space there will be somebody there to help you whether it's through the political class or people entertainment class or whatever so it's like i don't see that desperation like if back in atlanta i don't see that desperation to access white spaces and i still think it works the same way it used to work where like if you are in like a so-called middle class black neighborhood with nice houses and everything and a white person moves in you look at them with suspicion you like, yeah you, i remember my aunt and uncle they lived in like a um before they moved back to savannah they lived in like this upper middle area with a you know like this is a lot for new york it's a three four hundred thousand dollar home in a black area of atlanta it's pretty expensive and one white person moved in and like the whole neighborhood was like what is that and why is it happening like you still have those dynamics if, if a white person comes to like a like a 70 to 90 black areas you feel like I don't know why they're here and it's probably not a good thing like it's just like that, so that's why I asked about the regional thing I'm like well well, like, well I will I will say this I have read some bios of you know some of these type of creators or writers or whatever and some of them you know do come from Atlanta Atlanta too um but and they could be aberrations that live in like the northern suburbs or something I imagine I would be surprised yeah yeah, because people lie all the time. People, like, like Lena Waite says she's from Chicago, but then when you ask people who know the geography of Chicago, they'll be like, well, she lives, she's from some places kind of a little bit outside Chicago. She's not like from Chicago, like, you know, prop, uh, proper. And, you know, they could be doing that. And and also, at least one example I'm thinking of, the guy copped to being, um, the guy copped to being uh, bused to, bust outside of Atlanta to go to school. So I think it's still kind of, fits in with the theory that, um, you know, I had that, you know, either they're not from the hood or they're from the hood, but they managed to get bust uh, out of it uh, pretty, ah, okay. pr- yeah, pretty early. So like, uh, you're talking about like, yeah, this sounds like kind of like aberrations that for, through some means, like because they ain't given the whole bio, they got access to white spaces kind of like earlier in their life and then maybe by the time they hit college, that's when they truly interacted with, like, black people in a so-called meaningful way. Like, but I was kind of like, if these are normal people from the South who grew up in, like, and also went to school with black people, like, I don't see how this could be happening. It's like, you can probably don't make sense to me. I mean, as, as someone who liked, um, 
get out and you know to bring it back to the to the main to the main topic uh before before we end it like as someone who liked get out one thing that i liked about it was that i'm like okay this guy he did not you know grow up in black spaces and not have a black experience but i like that i felt like okay this guy is trying to write some kind of um you know movie about blackness that i think is more honest than a lot of other movies out there and you know and that's one thing that like a lot of like those kind of buzzfeed blavity black types always kind of think is that the rest of the black community is trying to get keep blackness from them or try to like um cast them out or do whatever but the real truth of the matter is like people don't hate them because they're uh went to like good schools or uh talk a certain way or anything people kind of don't like them because they have a kind of snobbiness to them a lot of the times. A lot of times they expect that when they come into white spaces, they're going to be installed at the top. Like, 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 like they will be like new to blackness or discovering the blackness, but instead of like taking a, you know, I'm going to watch and learn uh, position, they want to uh, come in on some superior level and, you know, be appointed the manager, a spokesperson of uh, black people. Like, like, I feel like the Black Lives Matter people were like that. Like, they just decided we're going to be activists and we're going to declare ourselves uh, the leaders of, you know, what's happening in the in the street without... We're going to have white people appoint us that. We're not going to actually be chosen that on the grassroots uh, level. And that's why a lot of people hate these people. And I feel like George, Jordan Peele was like, okay, I feel like this guy... And I think he was kind of proof of this because a lot of um, black people who are not those type of black people, they like get out, you know, and nobody was saying, hey, just be- because you grew up in a white experience and have a white wife, you're not allowed to tell this story. A lot of people were like, hey, you know, this story has something to say, like uh, we we like it, you know, and I think I'm wondering if that was like maybe a mistake because since then he's. I feel like he's been like morphing into one of these. He's been surrounding himself with uh, these type of annoying people. He's been putting them on. Like he was behind like Lovecraft Country, and that was a totally Are you new checker. Oh, yeah, oh yeah. He was. He, he didn't write it, but he was. It was his production company that did it. Uh, oh my god. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's putting on a lot of these uh, voices, and he's kind of like made these people into his into his tribe from what I can tell and it's become nothing but assimilation theater like um yeah, yeah us was really weird I remember us I haven't seen no yeah. yet, but I, I was like was this movie supposed to be about race and then you made it raceless or something because it was it, it didn't make sense to me it, it was still about race even though it wasn't like it, was, it said it was about class, but I mean the fact that these this was a successful white by black family surrounded by white people vacationing in white spaces it's it's still kind of unspoken to me. You know what I mean? Like uh, even yeah. if he didn't make it as as a uh, ex- explicit, like there's something you know when he's competing with the white father and about you know the cars and their money, like it's it's racially charged even if you don't make the subtext into. Um, text so i mean i don't know uh, i think that's a good place to um end it any um final quick thoughts you want to give no i really uh, don't have any it just sounds like maybe okay 
So I know you didn't like it, but do you think I should give it a shot anyway? Does it have any entertainment value, even if I don't like the, what it's trying to be? Okay, I'm not going to lie. I was entertained at um, times, but by okay. the ninety, but by the ninety minute mark, yeah, one hour is welcome for me, and I was ready for it to end uh, thirty minutes mm -hmm. before it did. But I have met people who like the movie, so I don't want to tell people not to watch the movie. Um, your mileage might vary, you know, but I will say at uh, thirty minutes out, like. And my wife was the same thing. She was looking at her watch and everything. And so, like, I like I was saying before, I don't know if you're here to hear it, um, but someone else agreed with me, too, so I wasn't alone. Where I was like, there's a good, tight, um, more dumbed-down 90-minute movie buried in this um, bloated, pretentious uh, two-hour one. And um, I w what I wouldn't do is watch it in the theater. I would watch it when it's streaming or at home and that's what I was about to ask. I was like, is it worth getting monkeypox or COVID for? I, 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 I don't know. No, nah, nah, and, and, and you know, what's worse is his production company is called monkey paw. And oh. when that, when that, when that, when that monkey paw sign came on in the beginning, I was like, man, I hope I don't get monkey pox watching this monkey paw movie. And, yeah. and then when it was done, I was like this damn freaking movie. If I, if I end up getting monkey pox for this thing, I'm going to be pissed as hell. Like, because as soon as I saw the monkey paw thing, the monkey pox thing popped right in my mind. Like, damn, I hope this movie's good. Because, like, you don't have to just, charge just, to, for your medical bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. He had to pay the whole theater. So, he's, it's not going to happen. Uh, all right. Thanks, Bernard. Thanks, everyone else who um, came through. Really appreciate uh, you guys joining us. We're going to do the regular Sunday show as well. Uh, Q was going to be here for this one, but uh, he ended up not being able to see the movie but uh yeah i mean if anybody was really into seeing this movie hey don't let me deter you go see it because rotten tomatoes um it makes it clear that i am in the minority on this the critics seem to love it the audience is like 70 percent. so you know maybe your mileage will vary but i think i'm done with uh jordan peele for for a while but yeah, everybody have a good night and join us on Sunday. Take care.